0: Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one-stop for board game news and reviews. Hold on to your pants, it's time for a special
1: episode. Welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop. Steve here. And hey, this is Mike. And we have a special guest with us, Emerson from Nazca Games. Hi, how are you doing?
0: Great, Emerson. Awesome to have you on the show.
1: Yeah, thanks for having
2: me on. This is great.
0: So for those who don't know... uh... Emerson, you, you have several very high-profile games that you've designed. Emerson is a designer. Uh, can you tell our listeners about a few of them, just in case they aren't familiar with your work?
2: Oh, sure. Uh, I guess my most uh, well-known one is the Century series. So it's a series of three games that uh, are standalone and they are are mixable, uh, with Spice War probably being the most popular one of them because it was the first one. Sure. And I guess more relevant to what we'll talk about later is Specter Ops, is uh, a hidden movement game that I designed a while back, and this is where I first met Steve uh, back at BGGCon in 2014, I believe. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, well, it's been a while. It's been a while. <laughs> wait, wait.
0: I, I haven't heard the story. <laughs> how exactly did you guys meet at BGGCon?
1: It was pretty random. I was traveling with a couple of my buddies, John and Howard, and I can't remember how we came across it, but at some point, we one of us ran to Emerson, and he was like, "Hey, do you guys want to try this new game?" I'm like, "Sure, why not?" And so he found a table off someplace off out of the way, and he taught us the game, and it was an epic game. I st- I was talking talking to Emerson before we started recording here that I still remember like the characters you played and some of the uh, events that happened in that game. Yeah. So yeah, in that game, you are trying to find uh somebody who's infiltrated this area, and so I was playing as the hunters basically. I was playing as the prophet who kind of can see the future essentially. So he has a cool ability where he can see the exact position of the the spied the infiltrator but not currently he can see like a few turns back and my buddy was playing the werewolf or, or wolf the beast and he can like sniff out the infiltrator he's in the within region so like all the hunters have cool special powers our uh, friend was playing a blue jay who was able to like trigger these missions points and so we were sending these these nets these maps and we were like yeah he can't get out and it's got really cool map setup. up and they're like, yeah, we know you're in this quadrant. And But it's like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, yeah, we are. He's like, okay, I'm going to trigger this mission point way over here. I'm like, what? How did you get over there? And he did that to us like multiple times. Like <laughs> found some hole in our net he snuck through. It was, it was pretty epic. So what what you're saying, Steve, is that you're terrible at Specter Ops. Uh, yep. <laughs> as, as in most games, probably, yes. <laughs>
0: Uh, so yeah, Emerson is on today to talk to us in general, but also specifically to chat about one of his upcoming designs, which is the Metal Gear Solid game coming from IDW.
2: That's correct. It's uh, Metal Gear Solid. It is based on the video game IP from Konami, and uh, we have—I believe—we have the pre-orders up on Amazon. So it's not a Kickstarter game, but it does have a pre-order page. Uh, it's a game that's going to have miniatures and. Uh, it's going to have, you know, several map tiles. It's going to have a whole mission book, uh, and the most important thing is that it is a one to four player, fully cooperative game. Well, that's what we like to hear.
0: And yeah, I did check out the Amazon listing for for those who haven't seen it yet. I think it's called the Year One package, or or Day One, or something like that. Um, and I, it comes with some exclusive minis, right? Like a the Hind helicopter and a tank, I think, as well.
2: Yep. Yep. Exactly. So,
0: that's fun if if you wanna if you wanna jump into the game early, you can get some cool swag as kind of a, a thank you bonus from IDW, I guess. So, but before we get into all of that, Emerson, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit uh, f- for for those who don't know who are listening? Uh, I, I design games with Peter, one of the other hosts of the show, and uh, Steve would like to design games. So we love talking to designers like you, Emerson. So uh, how did you how did you get into board games, and how did you become a board game designer specifically? How did you kind of jump into that side of things?
2: Uh, I actually dove into this industry uh, more as a publisher. I started off as a publisher, so that's why I have my company Nazca Games. And I had self published my first two designs, uh, which uh, I have one of them up on the wall over here. Uh, it's Vault a Robot Battle Arena. Oh, yeah, I know Vault. Okay, cool. Yeah, so that's the first board game that I've uh, published under uh, under my company, and uh, yeah, I was really trying to be a publisher. So I started off being an independent publisher. I would attend uh, publisher designer speed dating events, scouting out uh, other designers' designs. Uh, quite frankly, because I didn't think I could design. So, and it was only after uh, meeting Colby Dot from Plaid Hat Games, where he was you know, after I had shown him. My designs. He was actually he wanted to partner up and actually work together and have him publish those designs while I work on other designs. So it was like the first moment uh, in my path into this industry that uh, I had affirmation that I may have uh, a talent or a skill in designing games, and I've just kind of been pursuing that ever since.
0: That's great. Well, th- thanks, Colby, for helping to get you to give us some <laughs> great games, and I'm sure there'll be more to come down the line.
2: I hope so.
1: So I'm curious, what uh games do you currently play? What do you like to enjoy? What's your what's your style?
2: Oh, I'm actually really eclectic. Um, like some, some of my friends and uh, you know feel free to bleep this out. Some people call me a game horror because I will play just about anything. Because <laughs> <laughs> I love I love party games. I love you know deduction games. I love heavy euros, family games, uh, silly silly games, dexterity games. So I I like them all. So I don't think there's a genre of games that I I don't like. Um, Probably the only thing is that I am very picky with the heavy euros, though. What do you mean by that? Uh, A lot of them, I enjoy quite a few of them. uh, But I do find that a lot of them, I feel like it has mechanisms in the game that I feel that don't add enough to the game. So I feel like a lot of heavy euros tend to get uh, complexity bloat.
0: Well I, I I totally agree. I'm not much of a heavy euro player except for some specific ones. <laughs> but I know I know Steve dives a bit more into the euro side of things, right? Uh
1: I like a few of them. I need I like heavy theme though. Like if some theme can connect the mechanisms to to the gameplay, that's what sells me on it because I like, like to get lost in games and sometimes if there's a lot of complexity, yeah, I'm you know brain burning and that's getting me lost in the game. In that sense, but it's not as enjoyable to me. Yeah. So
0: jumping into very thematic games, as you mentioned, Emerson, you are designing or have designed, I'm not sure how far along in the process you are, the uh, upcoming Metal Gear Solid game from IDW. And I, I assume, or well, I'd like to hear kind of the story of how you got this game, this property. Was it a case of you got asked to design a Metal Gear game, maybe based on your Spectre Ops, like, stealth cred? Or was it a design that you had been batting around that wasn't specifically Metal Gear and then you kind of adapted it to the theme?
2: Yeah, actually, it started off with um, IDW well, had acquired or was working with Konami on different properties. So it wasn't just Metal Gear Solid that they were uh, working to acquire. And I was approached by my good friend Daryl Andrews, who's also a very well-known designer, that, had, uh, designer uh, that has you know, many very popular games. I think his most popular one is Sagrada, you know, which, which is an out, absolutely outstanding game. And he actually contacted me one day and he asked me, am I interested in doing uh, IP-based games? And uh, my response was, "Uh, yes, but I guess it would depend on the the IP. And as soon as he said Metal Gear Solid, my jaw just dropped and I couldn't believe (laughs) that that, you know, That is, of all the IPs in the world, I think that is the one that I wanted to work on the most.
1: I distinctly remember talking to you when you uh, taught us about Spectral Ops. I was asking about some of your other inspirations and other games you liked. And I remember you mentioning Metal Gear Solid being one of them. So when I heard you were on this project, I was super stoked. I'm like, man, you found the right designer for the job for this one. So. Well, thank
2: you, yeah. It's, it's definitely a dream dream IP uh, to uh, to work on. And the, the process was actually kind of interesting because I think the initial thought was because I had worked on that Ops that you know, I would create a hidden movement game you know, using a lot of the same mechanisms within Spectrops, Ops but kind of have it rethemed and tweaked for the Metal Gear Solid IP. But instead of working on that, Konami said that uh, they don't want actually a hidden movement game because they'd like for the characters to always be on the board. So I, I basically started with a blank slate and said, "Okay, well, what is the type of game that a Metal Gear Solid fan would want? What kind of an experience, and how do I kind of capture that whole video game stealth action? And how do I distill it down into a board game? Because when video games have so much logic in terms of how the AI moves, and uh, you know, a lot of the times the there's some interactions that are scripted, and you know, there's going to be moments where it's very cinematic, that it's going to be." Uh, a real challenge to be able to kind of condense that and be able to integrate that into a tabletop game. So it's something that uh, I didn't have any preconceived notions of what the game would be. And so I kind of built it from the ground up as with with the idea in mind that, okay, what would a Metal Gear Solid fan really want in a board game?
1: So as you're building this from the ground up, did you know at the beginning you wanted to make it cooperative or did it start in some of the form and then merge into a cooperative nature?
2: Uh, I think early on I did decide that maybe a cooperative game would be the the best because video games tend to have that um, I guess have have that storytelling driven from like one narrative position. So a cooperative game seems to fit the best when you want to kind of retell the story of the original video game.
0: Yeah, and it did work out kind of uh, (laughs) in your favors because correct me if I'm wrong. This is a in a way, the game retells the story of the very first Metal Gear Solid game, right, on PlayStation?
2: Yep, that's correct. So it's based on the very first Metal Gear Solid game.
0: Yeah, so I thought it was kind of perfect to have a one-to-four player game, or maybe two-to-four. I'm not sure uh, if you need at least two characters. Oh, actually, you
2: can play it solo if you'd like.
0: Oh, excellent. That, that, we love that. But yeah, you, you've kind of got four characters who help Snake in a meaningful way in that game. And I think all of them are represented, right? You've got Snake, Meryl... Uh, Otacon and and Gray Fox, is that right? Yep,
2: yep, that is correct.
0: I mean, I guess Gray, Gray Fox was kind of his own agent for a lot of the game, but he did uh, cut off a hand for you and do some other fun stuff, so <laughs> he clearly played his cooperative part in the end.
2: Yeah, Gray Fox is a really interesting character because I, I went back and I replayed the first game and I watched playthroughs of that first game, uh, as well as go through IDW's Metal Gear Solid comic book, too, which actually fleshed out a little bit more about what was going on behind the scenes Uh, in terms of the gray fox character to really integrate him as being uh, a very you know to keep that storyline very cohesive so uh, but because we are introducing or have we have the game being one to four players but when you go through the scenario not all the players are going or not all the characters will be unlocked so the first two scenarios uh, we actually call them like you know stage zero a and stage zero b and those are actually strictly single player so and it's actually meant it's more of a tutorial mission where it's supposed to teach you how the game plays and then you play it as Snake and uh, once you've completed those then you then you encounter Merrill, and then you then play as two players and then once you uh, meet up with both Otacon and Grey Fox then you can play it as a 4 player game so it's kinda staged in a way where the characters are introduced uh, gradually uh, and at the appropriate times that they appear in the video game, I mean it
0: sounds like it's incredibly solo friendly then if you can actually like start start with a single player and then continue through the entire like kind of storyline controlling one or more characters.
2: Yeah, actually, in fact, you could play the entire game single player, or that's that was the intention. You can play the whole game with just Snake if you wanted to. And in which case it you basically will be uh, kind of going through the entire uh, experience or the entire narrative from Metal Gear Solid 1 in its original form.
0: Well, hopefully not quite its original form. <laughs> do, do, do you have to pause gameplay every five minutes to listen to a long cutscene and uh,
2: really <laughs> overdone
0: Hideo Kojima-like dialogue? <laughs> <laughs> not
2: entirely, but uh, there is quite a bit of the that narrative. I mean, we did trim down uh, quite a few elements that may, may not always be in the right context inside of a board game, uh, but we did try to keep as much of the original narrative or at least the spirit of the original narrative as much as we could. We did cut out some things uh, so in the video game you had to do quite a bit of backtracking so uh, we eliminated all that so it's always, you <laughs> well, always have, you. Yeah, <laughs> there's always forward progression and things like that and also you can if there's anything that you wanted to skip you could just flip to the next scenario or the next stage. So you don't need to read all the coded conversations.
0: Well, and that, that was uh, something I was going to ask and Steve might be annoyed at me because I'm skipping ahead in our questions, but, uh, you, you bring up the idea that the initial scenarios are, you know, limited in the number of characters that appear in them. So is this a, is this like a campaign system where things that happen in one scenario will give you equipment or level ups or skills or something in future scenarios or can they each be played as one-off so that if I have like three of my friends over, we can just jump straight to a, you know, a Gray Fox, Merrill, Otacon scenario right off the bat?
2: Uh, I know this is going to sound odd, but it's actually yes to both questions.
0: Okay, <laughs>
2: explain oh. that. <laughs> what we decided and uh, one of the things that I've always wrestled with as a gamer and with a gaming group is, you know, I'm still, you know, it's been years. I still am stuck in July in Pandemic Legacy. And it's because getting that commitment was always a difficult thing. And it's also one of the reasons why I no longer play uh, D&D or any role-playing game was because that commitment was so difficult, at least in sort of my stage in life where I have kids, I'm married, I have a lot of obligations, and so do my friends. So, you know, getting that kind of commitment was always a difficult thing. So with that in mind, I wanted to make sure that the game was flexible enough that it's not going to tie you down to where you need to do the campaign in order. In fact, it's uh, in the rules, we say it's, it's you know, it's recommended to do the the scenarios in a particular order. That way the, the story is cohesive, but you can actually jump to any point in the story because let's say you have four players and you want to go up against a, a boss. Let's say you want to fight Vulcan Raven uh, as, a, as a boss encounter. You can do that. You can jump straight to there. Now, the interesting part is that uh, each time that you complete a scenario, you will actually unlock equipment. And that equipment can be used in then any scenario. So then let's say you defeat, uh, say, Revolver Ocelot, and then you were able to unlock the C4 equipment. You can then take that over and fight uh, Vulcan Raven with that. Oh, man. So so like
0: you, you can unlock the stealth camo in one scenario and then go back and like try the... The first scenario with an unfair advantage. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I love that.
2: That's awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, we have something called a memory box. And <laughs> my idea is that the memory box will look like the memory card from the original PlayStation 1. <laughs> and that's where you keep all the equipment cards that you've unlocked. Now, I I believe that the... Um, The legal team at IDW says we don't quite have the license to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Sony might have a little bit of a problem with that. (laughs) Well, we can't call it a memory card for sure, but perhaps we can do something creative without uh, stepping on any copyright landmines.
1: So, I'm a sucker for stealth games. Like, anything I hear stealth in, I get real excited for. Like, V Commando's u are some recent ones, that I just like quite a bit with stealth. So, that's what kind of threw Metal Gear Solid on my radar because I knew this is a heavy, like, stealth theme game. So, I'm curious. How do you handle stealth in this board game version?
2: Okay. Uh, there's two distinct uh, style of stages in the game, and I keep calling them stages just because that's like a common video game term. Uh, but they're basically scenarios uh, in, in, I guess, board game speak. So there are two types of scenarios. One of them is the sneaking stage where you're, need, where you're going to be using elements of stealth. And then the other types are going to be the boss battles where it's going to be mainly combat driven. The sneaking missions, uh, or for the sneaking scenarios, you're going to be uh, moving on... Uh, we have a series of boards that you're going to be traversing on. And there's going to be objectives that you need to get to. Uh, There's an AI deck that drives the patrol, so this is going to be like where the the genome soldiers are going to be moving around the board. And they sort of have a deck that dictates how they move and how they behave. And the players are going to try to actually get to their objectives, hopefully without alerting too many guards, or when they do, you know, you'll be able to take them out, hide their bodies, and try to you know get out of out of the line of sight of the guards so that you can go back into your stealth mode. So those elements are are there, and it's really just uh, an AI deck. Oh, I'm not I'm not too fond of the term AI when it comes to like a, like a deck of cards because it's really really uh, unjustified in, in, in the use <laughs> of that term. But it's more just a, a deck that will dictate the behavior of the guards, and so. Uh, And it's randomized, too, so you're not sure exactly what the guards are going to do. So you kind of have to plan your actions. You have to, you know, take certain risks because, you know, the the guard may go straight or they may turn that corridor. You're not sure, so you have to figure out, okay, well, I'm going to take a risk and go down this corridor, but there's a potential that the guard may turn the corner. So it's a little bit different than the video game, whereas the video game had set paths for the soldiers, and they would always traverse the path. Uh, they may have like a little bit different timings between them, but uh, within or for each of the soldiers, they have their own dictated path and uh, behavior. In the board game, though, if we if we mimic the same thing, it would be too easy to be able to bypass the guards uh, because there's no requirement of the players to have like high twitch skills to be able to coordinate their movement. Uh, so in the board game, we had to provide a different challenge. And that challenge is, is was introducing the uncertainty of which way the guards may move or how far they move.
1: So you mentioned this AI deck, and I know on some article reading, there was the term highly dynamic AI system. Um, <laughs> is, is this the AI deck you're referring to or is that something else? <laughs>
0: Everything's like, don't call it an AI system. And then the article says, it is a highly dynamic AI system. <laughs> <laughs> Take that marketing department. <laughs> well, I guess, I mean, just to kind of follow on that, um, are the AI cards very straightforward? Like all people move three to the left? Or is it is it dynamic in that it somehow reacts to where the player controlled characters are on the board, or right. you know modify like you have three different possibilities on there and only one of them becomes activated. Like h- how do you handle that kind of stuff?
2: <laughs> and again, I'm going to give for your uh, either or question. I'm going to say yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, each of the patrol cards actually has two sections. So the one of the sections is there's like a condition. So if this condition is met, it's going to do this. So that will. Yeah, so it is a little bit dynamic in that it's going to respond to like the current state of the board uh, you know sometimes there'll be proximity so if a guard is within a certain number of spaces of a player then it's going to do something specific in that particular case and then there's a bottom portion that will dictate how far that the guards will move and, and also if there's ever uh, if they ever get to like a t-junction of whether they're going to turn left or right so it has, it has both sections. So there's two sections, uh, one for uh, a conditional uh, action that the guards will take, and then the bottom is the, their uh, dictated movement that they're going to take.
1: Are these movements known in advance so you can plan for them, or is it completely um, sprung on the players so they have to plan for like a, a web of motion that they could
2: be in? So the players know the range of motion, the possible motions, of the guards, but they don't know exactly what the guards are going to do. I like,
0: I like that uncertainty. That can build some tension, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: exactly. That was all meant just so that the players, you know, there's always going to be some risk that the players are going to get discovered. And then when they are discovered, then the fun starts where now the guards are going to be shooting them. They'll throw grenades, you know, then to try to take out the guards. And then if they're, if they're in a position where they're not seen, then... The any gu- any new guards that respawn are then gonna you know, search the area where they were last at and then if they can't find them then they go back to their normal patrol pattern. Very cool. Oh man,
0: this sounds great. I can I can literally hear the like exclamation point sound effect. <laughs> you know the bling. <laughs> oh it's great. So going to the other side of things, because I know this uh this uh, definitely excites me in the game. The metal gear series in general is known for kind of amazing, crazy boss battles with these ridiculous casts of characters. And and I should say, uh, I'm, I'm a big metal gear solid fan. Um, especially, I mean, I played the original on Nintendo, but I definitely got into it with the PlayStation versions. And I think I've played every major release. I haven't played all the, uh, like the PSP releases or whatever, but, uh, but I love metal gear. So yeah, uh, Especially the original Metal Gear Solid has these very diverse boss battles. You've got Vulcan Raven with a tank. You've got the sniper duel with Sniper Wolf and Meryl, like throwing you ammo. You've got a uh, Psychomantis, which is just completely <laughs> insane. So, h- how much how much do you feel you were successful in kind of adapting or bringing to life some of the the uniqueness of those encounters? Uh, yeah,
2: just what are some cool things you came up with? Okay, yeah, so that was probably the the biggest challenge, and I think maybe I was being incredibly ambitious, but I wanted each boss battle to be a different experience as well. I don't want to spoil too much, so I'll just go over, say, like Revolver Ocelot. Uh, I remember playing him, and after like replaying it, I remember how much of a pain it was to keep up with him, because he seems to always run faster than you, and always end up on the other side of that that board. So... I wanted to create a set of game mechanics that would kind of simulate that feeling of like trying to hit this guy that's always running faster than you, uh, where and you need to be able to shoot, basically aim and shoot him, while also I was able to like ricochet bullets off and hit you without that's having <laughs> you in the line of sight. So I tried to mimic all those types of mechanics uh, in a board game uh, using... Uh, basically, I'm using the the same core of mechanics that, that we have for the sneaking missions and then adapting them for the boss battles. So all the movement still works the same, all the combat still works the same. But then the bosses have their own deck. So in the sneaking missions, the, the, the guards have their own uh, deck of cards that dictate their behavior. And then in the boss battles, it works the same way where they have a deck of cards that dictate their behavior. But obviously, this deck of cards is going to be very, very different in terms of how the the boss is going to behave. Very cool. And it's been one of the the biggest challenges was just each boss, because each boss is invoking sort of like a different gameplay experience, that it requires its own set of testing and iterating and testing and iterating. So that was one of the biggest challenges. And also that's the part that's probably taking the longest in terms of design and development.
0: I mean, that's pretty amazing. And I do want to say briefly, uh, when I first heard about the game... (laughs) I was, you know, a little not not pessimistic, but I was wondering if it would just feel like a, a soulless cash grab, you know, like, hey, here's a game that could have been any number of themes, but we're just calling it Metal Gear Solid. And here's a here's a miniature that looks like, you know, Metal Gear Rex. And there you go. <laughs> yeah,
2: I'm, I'm trying my best to uh, really. And because I'm I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of the Metal Gear Solid series and the franchise the IP. That I didn't want it to be just a, a game, that where I'm just taking some existing mechanics, you know, make, you know, slapping a Metal Gear Solid on a worker placement area control gate, not <laughs> right, <laughs> doing anything like that. So I really wanted to do as much to capture the experience, and and because I started with a blank slate, like I was, you know, I played the video game, I was watching walkthroughs, reading the comics, I was trying to completely immerse myself. And even while I'm developing the game, I have the Metal Gear Solid soundtrack always constantly playing in the background. Yes. Nice. So I'm hoping that that all this uh, will, will pay off once the, the players actually get to, to play the game. And hopefully it'll have them relive those, those moments from Shadow Moses.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it sounds, a- as a huge fan of that particular game and the series in general, it sounds like you're making the game that I want to play, which... I'm assuming it's because you're making the game that you wanted to play. Like, you wanted to design the best Gear game you could, not some not some other kind of yeah, weird version of the, the IP. So that, that's amazing, man. Th- thanks for your work. <laughs> In advance, having not played it, thank you.
1: <laughs> well, I hope it
2: doesn't disappoint.
1: That actually leads into probably a question maybe I should have asked earlier, but like, Um, How does the game actually play if you were to sit down and describe like the basic turn structure to someone like it's combat uh, Card driven dice driven. um, How would you explain that to people? Okay? So
2: it is uh, it's a cooperative game where players are going to be moving on a grid baseboard So it's it's kind of it has that typical uh, dungeon crawl type of layout where you're interlocking um, tile or boards and uh, there are doors that will lead into room. There's rooms. There's doors. Uh, there are uh, guards moving around on these boards when you're doing like the sneaking missions. And uh, the gameplay is as follows: where each player is going to have their own uh, player board, and it lists all the actions that that player can take. So you have you can move um, one space, you can move two spaces, but you may. Uh, uh, create some noise while doing so can uh, sneak behind a guard and take him out uh, if you're snake you have the ability to take out a guard silently uh, if you are Merrill, you have the ability to gain a disguise from a guard that's that's either been killed <laughs> or or knocked out
1: But steve steve you have no you've not played the game at all right no, but I'm, I'm familiar. I watched, like, playthroughs and stuff. Oh, so okay, I've got okay. Some... So, you know,
0: like, the whole, like, Meryl dresses as a guard thing for, like, yes. the first part of the game? Okay, just checking. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Continue, Everson. I'm, I'm just geeking out over here.
2: <laughs> so, when you get to a terminal, like, Otacon has special abilities where he can hack into the terminal and then be able to actually unlock uh, locked uh, doors on the map. Uh, and then, I mean, Gray Fox has the ability to go stealth and also with his sword slash all the guards that are adjacent to him and, and so forth. So each player is going to have their own player board. And every player has four action tokens that they're going to then place on the, the board so to allocate uh, what actions that they're going to be taking. And then the turn structure is uh, all the players are going to take their turns and then the enemy will then take their turn. And then it's back to the players. The players can then choose what order they want to activate in uh, the only strict rule is that once a player takes their turn, they have to complete their turn before the next player can take their turn. But otherwise, it's it's pretty flexible in terms of uh, what order that you want to do. You can discuss what you want to do. And in terms of the combat, it is it is dice-driven combat, uh, but it's, dice, it's dice-driven it's dice combat with quite a bit of uh, mitigation and a little bit of a risk versus reward type of uh, mechanisms, and also a little bit of a push or luck. Because if you move a lot, you're going to be rolling dice to see if the guards heard you or not. So you can move quietly, but you won't be able to move as far. But if you wanted to move farther, then there's a possibility of uh, alerting the guards by you know, generating noise. And the push and pull will be that there is going to be, for most of these sneaking missions, there is actually a time limit. So in that deck of the patrol cards for the, for the AI, there is... Seated in there a game over card. So if you take too long to complete your mission, there's a chance that that card will come up. So maybe you may need to kind of push your luck a little bit, move a little bit farther, but you always have that chance to make noise because you do need to roll some dice if you take noisy actions. And I'm sorry I don't have anything to show because I know that it's going to be hard to kind of visualize all these mechanics without having something to look at, but it is... um, uh, it is simply just an action allocation system. I think that's probably the best way to, to put
0: it. And I think I did see, for those who are interested, I think I saw either on IDW's website or on Board Game Geek a preview of Snakes player board. So it shows kind of the little tokens you're putting on the the action spaces. Yeah. So so if you want to check it out, maybe go over there and uh and see what it all looks like. Yeah. Yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. So, uh, something you said does go into another one of my questions. I love that you have this diversity of characters. Uh, for those who don't know who the game, uh, Gray Fox is a stealth camo ninja, like cyber ninja, basically, with a sword. Meryl was a yeah a, a sneaky ally and also someone you had to rescue sometimes. Otacon is like this completely con- combat inept, you know, super genius who like sneaks around in his own stealth camo for a while, helping you out quite a bit. Um, so you kind of you you got to this already, some with the different actions. But yeah, um, I, I think for games that have like kind of strong differentiation of characters like this one, you kind of have two extremes you can go to. One is the characters being totally different, but maybe feeling not useful in some situations. Like if Otacon can't attack at all, that might be a negative play experience. But then by the same token, if Otacon like picks up, you know, Vulcan Raven's like giant gun and starts shooting a tank himself, that would seem very <laughs> against the theme like on oh, the other end of things. So h- how have you differentiated the characters beyond what you already mentioned? And d- did you kind of still leave in the ability for everyone to fight, everyone to be useful in most situations? How do you kind of feel like you've done with that?
2: Okay, so the the example of Otacon is a really, really good example where he <laughs> actually on his player board, it specifically says that Otacon can't use weapons.
0: <laughs> yes that's perfect i mean i, I don't want him to because i feel like he'd piss himself if he tried to you know
2: <laughs> so you know i try to stick to the theme as much as possible but uh because we've placed us many 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 times that uh otacon has actually at least within like some of the the playtest groups that i've worked with that otacon has started to become one of their favorite characters uh in a way that he is the quintessential like support character because not only can he, like, unlock doors for you, but, I mean, he can actually create, like, diversions by actually, like, creating little noises through the radio. Or just, like, communicating with the guard and, you know, saying, hey, we heard a noise over here. So you can actually turn some of the guards around. So he becomes an incredibly useful character. The big downside is that he is completely inept with combat. But he does have his stealth camo, So he has, he, he has a very unique playstyle. Uh, Snake, on the other hand, uh, is, is one of the characters that everyone will is, always just jumps to to uh, get the opportunity to play. And the way Snake feels is that he is the one that is probably the most stealthiest. So he's able to take out guards without uh, making any noise. He, is, um, he has certain abilities that makes him hard to detect. And also, if he attacks from behind, he actually deals additional damage. So he's always incentivized to sneak around and attack from behind. So, you know, I try to get all of these abilities to feel as thematic as possible to the game. Uh, Merrill, on the other hand, she is she's actually really good at dishing out damage, but she's not good at mitigating any damage that she takes. Because we saw what happened in, in, in the game. Her special ability and the way that she's able to get around is to use the disguise. Oh, one thing I do want to mention is that uh, I was saying how uh, these scenarios are one to four players. There are certain scenarios where you can take any character and you can actually complete a, one uh, scenario with a single character and you can choose any of the characters. So there are missions where you can actually, if you have uh, access to all four characters and you can play it with as a single player game. And you can actually complete the mission with Otacon. So you can actually, by taking Otacon, you're definitely... Uh, taking the approach of avoiding combat by doing so. But there, these missions are doable with each of the characters. So you can use Meryl, you know, try to knock out a guard quickly, gain a disguise, get to the objectives, and get to the extraction point. Or you can play as Otacon, who is going to go in, use the stealth camel to bypass some of the guards, get to a terminal, you know, unlock the series of doors that has the most direct route to the objective, and then get to the extraction point. Or you could play as Grey Fox, you jump in there, slash up all the guards, <laughs> run through, don't care about setting off the alarms. You have waves of garbage coming after you, shooting at you, you're gonna be deflecting bullets and trying to get to the <laughs> extraction point before you run out of energy.
0: Oh man, I love it. Yeah, I, I, I again I saw like in the press releases that they, they use the phrase, I didn't get the exact quote, but something like infinite replayability, you know, and, and everyone likes to use that kind of term. <laughs> But, I mean, between what you're saying with uh, unlocking new equipment that you can kind of back map to previous scenarios and trying scenarios out with different people that might not have been there in the, like, canon storyline, but you kind of insert them in, that sounds uh, that sounds like you've done a, a great job getting along to that. Now, now did I see... I think, I think, Steve, you had mentioned this. Are there any VR missions in there, like kind of things that are not within the story, just sort of stealth challenges you can play? Or is it all just the the story game? No, actually, there
2: is. A, in fact, the game is is a, um, slated to come with two books. One is the, the main storybook, uh, and that's going to take you through sort of like the story of the whole Shadow Moses incident. And then there's a second book, which is actually the VR scenario book. So if you remember, I was mentioning that you have these series of uh, scenarios that you can You can use any of the four characters or all the four characters. It's one to four players. Uh, And you can take any of the characters or any combination of characters. Those are the VR missions. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So each of those are sneaking missions. uh, And I guess this is where IDW uh, has uh, the quote of uh, infinitely replayable because you can use any combination of characters. Uh, You can also use any combination of equipment. And you can also approach it differently. Like, for instance, if you decide to go, you know, very combat-heavy, where you just deck everyone out with uh, stinger missiles and Nikitas and grenades and Claymore mines, you can approach <laughs> it. You can approach it that way, or you can, uh, you know, be a little bit more conservative. You can get the the key cards, right? So you have different access key cards. Uh, you can use uh, the stealth camos. You can use the flashbangs if you ever get in it in a pinch. Uh, Actually, Snake even has a cigarette. So, uh, cigarettes have two uses. You can use them to kind of bypass the laser traps that are on the board, like like in the video game. Uh, But you can also actually toss the, the cigarettes to actually create a diversion. And then, you know, you'd be able to sneak around guards that way. So you could take the stealth approach, you could take the combat-heavy approach, or you can take uh, an approach in between as well. Like, you have the freedom to take that approach or, you know, go through different sets of doors. Maybe you want to take the elevator to get to that floor, or do you want to go through the locked or have Otacon open the locked door and so forth. So each each of the scenarios should have different ways that you can approach it. That sounds awesome.
0: Now, is there a cardboard box, Emerson?
2: Absolutely. It would not, it, it could not be a Metal Gear Solid game without
0: it. Yeah, but By the way, I think, uh, Steve, am, am I correct that you you were wondering if there was actual VR in the game?
2: No, I wasn't
1: sure what that meant. I saw something <laughs> being mentioned in there, so I'm like, is this actual VR or is this something else? But it makes sense now.
0: <laughs> yeah, so, so for those who don't know, the Metal Gear Solid video game series, especially I think 1 and 2 were really heavy with it, had like VR scenarios you could practice and sort of challenge yourself with.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, a lot yes. of them were on a time attack mode where you would have to like sneak and try to get the best time.
0: Right. Yeah, but no, I don't think it's this Chronicles of Crime, Steve. I don't think that it comes with a set of glasses and you can like actually be <laughs> in Snake's world and <laughs> move around the map. <laughs> Although, hey, that, that would be cool. There you go. a <laughs> yeah,
1: peek around the corner with these VR glasses on to, to scope out this area. Yeah. So. But hey,
0: that would be an amazing stealth game, right? If you were actually in the game and you could actually look around and see the other characters. <laughs> <laughs> There you go, Emerson, design goals for the future. (laughs) I'm going to go into video games now.
2: (laughs) That's right.
1: So what what part of the design of this game are you the most proud of?
2: Oh, gosh, this is, uh, it's difficult. I mean, I feel like I have, I think this is the one project I have spent the most time and effort and passion to try to come up with uh, this design. So there are quite a few elements that I'm really incredibly happy with the way it works. I still do have a, a, a small window of time to still make tweaks, so we are still you know, doing as much testing as we can, still trying to tweak areas. Um, so some of the best boss battles, I feel like, you know, they, they need just a little bit more tweaking in terms of getting it to have a good experience at all player counts. Gosh, what would be the one thing that I would be particularly proud of? Well, uh, there is one thing that I'm, I'm really happy with, and I know it's going to sound like an, a very odd thing to, to pick out, uh is that uh, in the video game there's like a list of all the different items that you can pick up uh in the video game and i think with the exception of the ketchup bottle and the mind detector i think i've incorporated every piece of equipment that you can oh actually and the camera because i couldn't really figure out a good use of the camera <laughs> but besides the camera the mind detector and the bottle of ketchup which i know sounds completely odd for anyone who doesn't know the the series or doesn't know some of the details of the series but yeah so we i feel like you know we've gotten a lot of the the feel of the game and especially all the equipment i try to make every piece of equipment uh as uh as thematic as possible or as true to the video game as possible
1: so you mentioned that this game is up for pre-order right now and with all the games that currently go on kickstarter why did you decide to go to pre-order and not actually uh, uh publicly funded through kickstarter
0: well, and, and to be clear, I'm sure it was IDW, not you. <laughs> that's, that's correct. <laughs> but yeah, like IDW did uh, recently the the TMNT, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game that was a big Kickstarter success. So yeah, so uh, do you have any idea what, what went into the pre-order decision instead of Kickstarter decision?
2: Yes, actually. it's a, It was actually by the request of the licensor. Um, so Konami actually requested that it not be crowdfunded.
0: There you go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That works. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a lot of excitement for this game. I'll say that I am, I mean, especially after talking to you, I'm beyond excited for the game. But for people who I think the price is over 100 not a lot over 100 but, you know, there's a lot of miniatures in the game, a lot of cool components in the game, clearly a ton of content. But if you were still trying to convince somebody who's like, I don't know if I want to spend that much for a Metal Gear Solid game, what, what might you say to them? How do you justify the price, including, I mean, I, I know you're not necessarily designing the miniatures, but how do you feel about the, the, the tests you've seen so far, the components you've seen so far?
2: Yeah, I actually, I've been keeping up with some of the threats on BGG in terms of like the, the cost and sort of like the, the shock value of seeing the, the price. And the, the pre-order page just shows, like, the miniatures and the, the components. But I think the one emission that it doesn't show is the the two books that it's going to come with. And I think one of the books is it's going to be well over 100 pages because it's going to have mm. a lot of narrative, whereas the other one, I think, is going to be around 40 or so pages. So there's quite a bit of just printed material.
0: Wait, 40 pages of VR missions?
2: Uh, it is. Well, it's actually wow, man. <laughs> 40 pages of VR missions, but uh, the, the first book is the story campaign. Oh, okay. It's going to have the entire story. And in fact, we have comic artist, Kantho, uh, who's incredibly talented. He's actually doing like comic panels to like retell the, the story. And I really, really enjoy his art style because it's, a, it, it's a sort of a blend of Yoji Shinkawa, who is a concept artist uh, for the Metal Gear series and sort of uh like some of the modern comic artists that that you see in uh in recent comics so it's kind of he's got this cool blended style uh, between them that i really enjoy so you're going to see his comic art uh kind of telling the story so between the the actual scenarios you're going to see like comic frames kind of like in a graphic novel style so you'll be able to capture the whole story as you go from one scenario to the next and that's going to be about 100 pages the second book is actually going to be all the rules reference so it contains the rules references, it contains the, um, the VR missions, so it's going to, we're planning to have 10 VR missions, 10 or so VR missions, I should say, because we're not sure if we're going to add one or two more to that. Uh, and then in the back of that, we're actually going to have the FAQ, which we're actually calling the codec reference. So, so both are going to be actually quite thick books, and that's something that's not, not shown in there. And I think when people see just the miniatures, uh, then they may look at the price and think it's it's rather steep but there's actually a lot more um, components than just what's shown there Uh, specifically the books, the books are actually going to be you know quite thick and it's going to have an incredible amount of uh, content, at least like you know artistic narrative content in there Uh, and we're also going to have a lot of actual boards, so I'm not sure if all the actual uh, map boards are shown, and each of the map uh, boards are also double-sided as well, so I think we have 15 full-size map boards, so just think of having like 15 full-size boards, or eight, 8 by 10 size boards that you're going to be combining together. So there's going to be 15 of those, and they're all double-sided. And along with other, like, punch, there's actually quite a bit of punch board, too. So it's it's got a lot of content outside of just the miniatures that's, that's shown on the page.
1: What's your target release date for this game? Uh,
2: actually, IDW has December as the release date, but uh, because of... Uh, now, this is just me speaking personally, just my personal opinion is that it, it, that date might be hard to hit. And, uh, and the only reason is why is that there's, there's always a process of once we've completed something that we always need to get the, the approval uh, from the IP holders. So, and because I, I've seen just sort of like the back and forth, the whole approval process, it does take quite a bit of time so as much as i would love for it to uh release in december but and i think there's still that possibility it could but because after seeing this it's like oh wow this may this may take more time than, than we anticipated so um i'm hoping that uh yeah it will it will we'll have some time to you know make sure everything is perfect and that the license the konami is going to be happy with everything that we've done and i hope they're going to be happy with sort of like the story progression because we try to keep it as canon as possible
0: yeah i'm I'm really excited uh take your time get it right
1: (laughs) (laughs) uh thanks for sharing this with us i mean i'm very excited for what we're hearing i'm i'm very optimistic to see what the end product is i hope it
2: doesn't disappoint i mean i'm really um Really excited to uh, have this product out, and I'm really hoping that the the fans of the Metal Gear series like really enjoy it. But also, uh, one of the reasons why I chose to um, stick with the original narrative was because you know one of the target audiences that I like to reach are people who've never uh, experienced the the original uh, Metal Gear Solid game on the PlayStation, and I thought that the story was absolutely phenomenal. So I wanted to have the opportunity to like introduce other people who have never played the video game and just play tabletop games, just to introduce them to that story, have them experience that story for the first time.
1: I'll be your guinea pig. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. I was going to say, Steve, maybe you'll uh, jump in afterwards.
0: Right, well, Emerson has been so awesome having you on the show. Uh, thanks so much for making time for us. So uh, we know Metal Gear Solid, maybe end of this year, sometime early next year. And then I think uh, the final game in the Century trilogy, Century, A New World, released recently at Origins. Uh, Is there anything else uh, coming from you? I mean, I'm I'm sure you're very busy with Metal Gear. The one
2: thing, uh, one other project that I can uh, mention is that uh, I have a city building game uh, with Arcane Wonders. And I believe this will be their uh, part of their Dice Towers Essentials lines. And I think that it should be announced soon. (laughs) Soon Soonish. Nice. (laughs) I'm I'm assuming that one will not be cooperative. (laughs) That's definitely not a not a cooperative game. Uh, But I think it's going to be slated for early to mid uh, 2020. Is my guess. Great, man. Well,
0: congratulations from from one designer to another. Congrats on all the big success, man. It's awesome. Thank you.
2: Thank you. So,
1: yeah, thanks for joining us. It was a pleasure. Um, how can listeners reach you if they want to reach out to you? Okay.
2: Uh, I am notoriously bad at social media. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm right there with you, man. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's something that I just find so difficult to, to, to keep up with and be diligent about uh, posting. But uh, I do have a Twitter account and a Facebook page. Uh, so on Twitter, it's just at Games. And Facebook is just Facebook slash uh, Nasky Games. So, but uh, I apologize to you know to folks who uh, you know tweet at me and things like that that I'm just incredibly slow to respond. So I do apologize for that.
0: Now yeah, we, we we all we all know your pain, man. <laughs> Especially when you've got a family and you're you're designing games until the wee hours. I'm sure it's uh, tough to make everything work at once.
1: Yeah, it's hard to keep up with all that stuff. Well, thanks. That was a uh, I appreciate your time on this. It was great chat with you and mike thanks as always for joining yeah thanks thanks for thank you guys for having me this is a this is a lot of fun
0: no it was great man i'm so excited about the
1: game and and all the stuff coming from you in the future oh thank you so thanks so much emerson for joining us on this podcast really appreciate talking with you and hope you listeners enjoy the content and we'll see you on the next stop
0: thanks for listening to another episode of the one-stop co-op shop podcast Please check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop, where you can get great game playthroughs and 5 and 5 reviews. If you want to have a conversation with us, the best place to reach out to all of us is on the Slack channel. Links are in the show notes. You can also talk to us on Twitter at MVP Board Games or email us at Games at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us again, and we'll
1: see you next week with another Top 5 list. Welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop. Steve here with let's, oh, let me try again. I'm gonna introduce you, to Mike, I guess, or
0: <laughs> uh, do whatever you like, man. I'll talk whatever it's about to. I feel like I'm
1: struggling so much after being like out of recording a podcast for like three weeks straight. Because I'm traveled. So I'm like trying to get back and swing things. Anyway, okay. <laughs>
0: And by the way, li- listeners, sorry for having my voice on the podcast three weeks in a row. I will try my best to not be on next week, but I think I am anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, actually, wait, wait, never mind. I'm, Steve, I'm forgetting. You just had an episode last week that I was not featured in at all. So,
1: boom, everything is fine. I was going to say, did you sneak <laughs> yourself into that podcast? I'm not really sure. <laughs> so. I, I, I did it. I did it. <laughs> you have to play the podcast backwards to hear Mike's voice. That's how it works. So. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Excellent.